Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, an imaginative storm podcast offering you fertile ground for conversations with listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more of Walter's music, Davine Dial, thank you for managing WPVMFM, WPVMFM.org, if you'd like to know more about community radio. Over the past five years, I've had many guests on the show, and I'm always glad to have them. I've also started the idea of exploring solo shows, which is what I'm going to do today. I like to do solo shows because it gives me an opportunity to connect with you on an almost one-on-one basis. We may know each other personally, or maybe we've never met. If we haven't, you can always email me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. And of course, if you and I know each other, please, I'd love to hear from you as well. After a bit of time in Taos, almost two years, I've had the opportunity to venture out a bit this year, 2022, and I've been on the road since about the 20th of September, and it's the 1st of November, so it's about six weeks, I guess, I've been out. And I'm not a big traveler. I don't like to roam around the world and adventure all that much. But on this trip, I did manage to go visit my good friend in Paris for three weeks and do a workshop there, and I managed to make my way back to Asheville and participate in the 50th Leaf Festival. I hosted the Poetry Slam on Saturday night. Maybe you were there. Who knows? Maybe you even saw the slam. We had an excellent time, and it was the 50th Poetry Slam I've hosted at the Leaf Festival over the past 27 years. Two years we took off for the pandemic and did most of the work on Zoom. So this was the 50th Solid Gold Leaf Festival. The Monday after the Leaf Festival, I had an opportunity to perform a story at a storytelling event hosted by Gareth Higgins and Brian Ammons and sponsored by The Porch Magazine, an online magazine Brian and Gareth produce and publish. It was a privilege to have the invitation, and I wanted to do something that would have meaning for the people in the room as well as have meaning for me as the teller. I went back and forth with a couple of choices I had and finally settled on the story that I told. I'm not a professional storyteller. I'm a poetry teller, performance poet, spoken word poet, more than a storyteller. I do admire the great storytellers. Uh, Connie Reagan Blake, for example, who lives in Asheville, is a terrific storyteller, and I've always enjoyed my connections with Connie over the years. That said, if somebody asks me to tell a story, I generally have more than one to offer up based on some of the things that I've done over the years. So as I was sitting there waiting for my turn, I was going back and forth between two or three stories and finally decided, okay, I'm going to gonna tell this one. So I did, and it came off 
rather well, and the reason I know it came off well was not because people applauded or they said, you're a fantastic storyteller. It came off well because afterwards people came up to me and said, you know, I've had a similar experience. I can identify with what you said. It sounded like you were telling my story. So I would like to tell you that story now. It's really a predictable story. It's a story about my father. It's a story about me, father-son relationship. You probably have a story of your own about your father, your mother, probably most of your relatives. Some of them are terrific stories. Others may be maybe not so grand, or maybe they have a little edge around them. This story I'm about to tell you is a terrific story with an edge and with some sympathy and empathy. It's about my father, it's about music, it's about World War II. When I stepped up to tell my story in front of the group on that Monday night, a musician from Asheville was there, David Lamont. And David had played just before I'd stepped up, and if you've ever heard any of David's music, you know He's an excellent singer-songwriter. The man knows how to enjoy himself on a stage, and he certainly knows how to allow the audience to enjoy themselves as much as he does. So David had finished playing and had left his guitar on the guitar stand. So when I stepped up to the microphone, I wasn't quite sure where I would start. And as I was walking up, I looked at David's beautiful guitar, and I knew, I knew where the story would start. And so I said, if you look at the guitar to my right, David Lamont's beautiful guitar, the one with six strings on it, you will notice that the first string is a very small string. And the last top string, the bass string, is a very big string. Now, if you take your left index finger if you're right-handed or your right index finger if you're left-handed and you place that finger on the small string three frets down on the third fret press the string down the E string and then strum the first four strings and that's the G chord and once you learn the G chord and you add the D chord and the C chord, and you learn all three, you have enough chords to play a few tunes on a guitar. And then I asked everybody in the room why they might think learning how to play three chords on a guitar would be important to the story that I was going to tell them. I then went on to tell them that my father was an old-time fiddle player who played the fiddle all his life in western North Carolina, most especially around Asheville. My father also, and I will tell you this as well, my father was a World War II veteran. And he loved to take photographs. Now, I know that he loved to take photographs because when I was a boy, I remember going down into his dark room, and I remember looking in the cigar boxes he kept on a shelf, and looking at the old black and white photos he took when he was a soldier during World War II. He, as I said, loved to play the fiddle, and I remember from the very, very beginning 
of my awareness of my father, he always had a fiddle around. He always had guitars around and an accordion and mandolins and other instruments around the house. So there was the contrast between the photographs and the music. And me being slightly aware that he had been in, quote-unquote, the war. So my most keen awareness of my father being in the war was when I went into his dark room and opened those cigar boxes. Back in the back in the 50s, the cigar boxes were very sturdy and would hold lots of things. So after you finished your cigars, you could use the boxes. And in the 50s, which was not that far from the 1930s and the Depression era, which ended when World War II started, like so many things of that era, those cigar boxes were used over and over again. So when I would go into my father's dark room, he wasn't trying to hide anything. He didn't have that many secrets buried in the dark room. He just had old photographs from his World War II experience tucked away in those cigar boxes. So as a curious boy, I went into the dark room and took the boxes down and opened them up. And he had photographs of he and his buddies, very young men, mostly in their 20s, laughing and happy with the dog tags around their necks, drinking their beers, leaning on a jeep or standing in a field. And he had a number of photos of he and his friends smiling, even though they were in war. Of course, as a young boy of six or seven, I really didn't understand that the men I saw in those photographs were young. I just thought they were men, and there was my father, standing amongst them, smiling. I dug deeper into those cigar boxes more than once. He had a lot of photos. He loved to take pictures. He enjoyed photography. Even though he worked for the power company as a lineman, and he strung wires all over western North Carolina to bring power to all of the houses, he was more interested in photography and music than stringing wires. His job, however, during World War II was to string communication wires across the ground as the troops advanced toward Berlin. And he was in the Battle of the Bulge as well as other battles. As he said more than once, I was in for the duration, which meant when he was drafted, he stayed until the war was over or until he was killed or wounded in battle. Since he was a little behind the lines, he was never wounded. And obviously, he lived through World War II, and I'm grateful for that. He, however, didn't return home without a few scars. He brought the war back with him as so many fathers do after they've gone off to battle or to war and it really doesn't matter which war they're in they always bring much of it back home with them and some deal with it in easier ways than others as i was looking through his cigar boxes with all the photos in it i began to realize he did more than stand around jeeps drinking beers with his buddies and smiling he had also taken more than one photograph of some of the battles he came upon. It was winter time, and the soldiers who had died were frozen, some against trees, some on the ground. And as a six- or seven-year-old boy, seeing these dramatic images made a big impression on me, as you might imagine. 
then also he was there when the concentration camps were liberated and I found images of the concentration camps. You've probably seen those images before. Emaciated prisoners standing with the gates open looking out. And there were other concentration images too. I'm sure you've seen them and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I won't go into it here. Again, you can imagine six, seven-year-old boy looking at these images. My first introduction, really, to the world beyond Western North Carolina, the world beyond Pine Lane, where I was growing up, in the house my father built in 1953 after he returned from the war and went back to work at the power company. Now that I think about it, those images were so foreign to me, so different from the, the life I was living in the country, where everything was relatively safe. We played without much supervision. We ran free, if you will. We didn't feel the burdens that people feel in war zones. And those burdens in war zones really haven't changed even to this day. The war in Ukraine is going on right now. I imagine there are photographs that will emerge from that war. Maybe some young sons and daughters will view them later. Who knows? Likely lots of photographs because we are now in the age of digital photos. Back then my father shot film. Very different. And <laughs> the images were in cigar boxes. Now the images are everywhere. But the struggle, the agony, the horror of war, Regardless of whether the images land in cigar boxes or on your screen, the immediacy of it from the human point of view has never changed over the centuries, I imagine. Just the methodology has changed. I forgot to mention until now that that dark room was off limits to me and off limits also to my brother David. David and I were only 11 months apart in age, and so in some ways, even though we were brothers playing together as brothers do, we were almost twins, if you will, certainly close as we played in the countryside growing up there on Brevard Road. We were forbidden to go into the darkroom. I snuck in. I didn't know why I was forbidden to go into the dark room, but my curiosity just really got the best of me. And so as I shuffled through those cigar boxes, looking at all those images from World War II, I didn't really understand the implications those images carried. I didn't understand why my father wanted to keep those secrets. Don't know if he was trying to protect us or if he just simply, like so many men who come back from war, he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want anybody to know about it. He wanted to keep those secrets tucked away in a box in a dark room on a shelf where nobody could see them. And maybe he never even looked at them. I don't know. But as I sat there in the dark room, looking through those boxes of photos, I was getting to know my father, and I was also getting to know myself, getting a better sense of the world. And it didn't register on me then, as it is now, that those images probably were, were part of the reason why I moved out away from 
Western North Carolina and started exploring the world, not to see images like that, to, to, but to maybe just understand why. Why do people do things in ways that create such havoc, such suffering? And on the flip side, such joy, such camaraderie, like the buddies all standing around the jeeps, sipping their beers and having a grand old time in the sunshine, with their shirts off. When those images were taken, it was summertime, not the cold winter my father experienced at the Battle of the Bulge. The contrast, always the contrast. I think that's what those images suggested to me when I was a, a boy, and that may be why I'm even doing this show right now, telling this story right now, exploring these questions still, all these years later, exploring these questions. My father had his secrets in the dark room, and I was secretly in his dark room, uncovering the secrets he was trying to keep. On the opposite side of his kept secrets, down in the dark room, my father made no secret at all about how much he loved old-time Appalachian music. He loved to play the old tunes on his fiddle. He seemed to hold that fiddle like it was his child or something precious that he wanted to protect, to keep safe. He also liked the piano as well, and he played the guitar and the mandolin, the harmonica, but he kept always coming back to the fiddle. It seemed like he had a relationship with it, if you know what I mean, and if you're a player and you own an instrument, you probably have a, a similar feeling toward the instrument that you've owned, and I imagine energetically speaking, there's something to that, because when you make music on these wooden instruments, there's a vibration that comes out from you into the instrument and then out into the room. And there must be some kind of energetic something that happens when one does that. My father, as I said, made no secret about his love for music, although sometimes when I watched him hold his fiddle, I would wonder if there was more to it. What was the story behind the fiddle? How come he seemed to treasure it so much? And maybe I didn't think of that consciously. Maybe as a boy that was something that was more subconscious. But I did notice so often when he picked it up, there was a, an ease about it, a, a treasuring when he lifted it. I doubt I made a connection between the secrets and the cigar box, the images, and the fiddle, which was also, in its own way, a more beautiful box, a rounded box. I suspect my father loved to play old-time music because, one, he just simply loved it, as so many people around Western North Carolina did back when I was growing up, and it's still true to this day. He loved to play those old tunes. If you're a classically trained musician or someone who has studied music and you're completely familiar with how vast the musical range is in the world, you might find yourself wondering why my father and his peers played the same songs over and over again. The songs didn't change much, the chord structure was very simple, and the tunes were always the same. And yet there was something soothing about that organization, I think, something that gave them a sense of, of place, a belonging, a sense of home. My father was not the only World War II veteran in those circles. He was just the one that I had the 
contact with. He was the one I knew intimately. And as I said earlier, he did bring the war home with him. Of course, he never talked about the war, which is not unusual for people who come back from war. So much happens, they just can't deal with it, and so they keep it bottled up inside of them. That said, it emerges in all kinds of ways. Just because you bottle something up inside of you doesn't mean that it's not going to come out and express itself in all kinds of behaviors. So my father, like so many men of that time, he was punitive. He believed that if he was going to be a good father, he had to discipline his children. My brother and I were the oldest two, and then I had another brother who was a little younger, and then a sister. So my brother David and I were the ones who got the most from my father when it came to his explosive episodes, as we call them. Of course, today those episodes will be known as post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. But back then, we just called it his episodes, which were unpredictable. You never knew when he would go from being a happy-go-lucky sort of joyous fellow to turning and becoming a monster, really. And sometimes the monstrosity lasted for a brief while, or it went on for an hour or so. You just really could never tell. And it was always a mystery to me and to my brother why one minute the sky was clear, and the next minute there were dark clouds all over the house. Another thing I remember about those episodes, his breath always seemed to me to smell like peaches. Because we were a church-going, non-drinking family, officially, quote-unquote, I'd never been around alcohol. I had no idea that the smell I was getting wasn't the smell of peaches, but it was the smell of alcohol. Turns out, my father had another secret. Remember all those beers that he drank with his buddies around those jeeps with their shirts off in the summertime? Well, he brought that home as well. He was a secret drinker. I don't think he drank that much during the week, but on Saturdays when he, he was off and was doing the chores around the house, he would dip into the basement or dip into this corner or that corner or into the closet and take a sip. I don't think he had hundreds of bottles scattered around the house, but I bet he had two or three hiding places. Nobody ever saw it. Nobody had any idea. So by the time three or four o'clock rolled around on Saturday, he was pretty well into the, into the sauce, if you know what I mean. And for some reason, the combination of, of his war memories, I'd like to think the combination of his war memories, and my brother and David and me running around, maybe irritating him by that point, that combination created something in him that just stirred him up in a way that did turn him into a monster. So he would often turn on my brother and he often turn on me and discipline us for some something that we did, something we said to them. And we never understood exactly what it was. One minute it was fine and the next minute we had done something so, so wrong that it deserved some harsh physical punishment. 
and it took me years to figure it out. I certainly didn't figure it out when I was younger. And the funny part was, and this was something that was always a mystery to me, we would have these big, rambunctious episodes on Saturday. And then when Sunday came around, we would all get up, dress, go to church, and everything was fine. But of course, the secrets were still there. And even though it looked fine, there were the bruises underneath. That said, often on Sunday mornings when the hymns came around, we would stand and sing, and my father had a beautiful voice, and I would harmonize with him as we sang. I was never a great singer, yet I enjoyed the harmony. And as you've already figured out, this story is about harmony. How do we harmonize all of the stuff in our lives so that we can understand it? Maybe live with it, maybe embrace it, perhaps forgive it. Certainly come to peace with it, come to terms with it. And when you're coming to terms with anything, you usually have a contrast. I had the contrast, the secrets, the alcohol, my father's PTSD, and on the other side, his love for music, his love for photography, his love for making home movies on his 8mm camera. He would shoot little stories of us living and working and playing on Pine Lane. And years later, my brother David digitalized the home movies, and I now have the home movies on a hard drive, so I can watch them any time. They're silent, but there's one shot of my father climbing a telephone pole with hooks attached to his boots and then he lifts me up and puts me on his lap dangling from the telephone pole it was not safe if people saw that today they would get completely undone so we have the contrast between the secrets and the music if you will the war and the peaceful nature of pine lane and while I never understood why my father moved into those unpredictable episodes, I did understand why he played music, and I did appreciate it, and I wanted to play music as well. So when I was around 11 or 12, I asked my father if he would teach me how to play the guitar. He had a yellow orchestra guitar with steel strings, and it was big, and when he first handed it to me, I remember feeling overwhelmed by its size. And what he did was start the same way I started my show on Monday night at Gareth's gathering, his storytelling gathering. He said, take the index finger of your left hand, place it on the third fret first string, that's the E string, and now strum the the four strings and I did I strummed the four strings and it made a, a sound and then he said move your index finger down to the fifth fret and do the same thing and I did and it made another sound and then he said move your index finger all the way back up to the first fret and strum the strings and it made a different sound and so I sat there for a bit of time, moving my little index finger back and forth and strumming the strings. And he said, now that's how you play the guitar. And later he taught me, soon thereafter really I should say, he did teach me the D chord and the, and the C chord. So I was excited to learn how to play the guitar even though it was one finger and one string. And I practiced 
because I wanted to play with him when he played his piano and when he played his fiddle. And I learned all of the basic chords, uh, A, B, C, D, E, and F, plus some sevenths and some minors. And after a couple of months, I was able to clumsily move around on the guitar. And as that time passed, he showed me how to follow along strumming my guitar behind the tunes he played on the piano and the tunes he played on the fiddle. And again, these tunes were really simple. Nothing that complicated about Old Joe Clark or Alabama Jubilee. I was thrilled that we could play together. Now, the episode still existed, but there was a contrast. Here we are back to the contrasts. So his secrets that he kept, even though he never revealed them, somehow came out through the music, that interaction we had together when we were playing. It took about a year for me to get good enough to play with him however I pleased. And I remember he would come home from work after a hard day at the power company and walk through the door with his black lunch pail in hand and smelling of creosote, as he always did, because he did work for the power company. And they used creosote on all of the poles, like the one that he lifted me up up with in the in the movie that I still have and he would walk through the door and he'd say well son let's play a tune and I was so excited and we would go into the living room he would take the fiddle down or sit down by the piano I would pick up my guitar we would tune up and start to play we played an hour or so before supper and afterwards we would often go back to the living room and play again so I had throughout my teenage years opportunities to play with my father on and on and on. I would say six days a week. Possible. Likely. Yes, indeed, six days a week. And it was a way we would make peace around the episodes. I finally got good enough as a player to join him in the circles he would attend on nights out, like Thursday or Monday. He would go to these different locations around around the Asheville area and play with his other friends. And they let me sit in, and as I sat in those circles, I learned more and more about how to keep the rhythm, about how to play, about how to interact as a group. And he was always so, so happy. And I eventually got the opportunity, or he gave me the opportunity, to go with him to play square dances. So I remember I would sit in the back and strum my guitar, and the guys would play, and the people would do their square dancing, and I was part of the band. So that early experience of being on stage is probably one of the reasons why I still enjoy telling stories and standing on stage and visiting with people from an audience performer point of view. So when my father and I were playing music together, there was depth in our relationship. Outside of the music, our relationship was fairly shallow in the sense that we never went deep with anything. He usually had a short answer for any question that I would ask him. And he would say to me after I left home and started traveling around, when I came back home, he would say to me, well, how is it, son? I would say, everything is fine. That's good. I'm, I'm glad. I hope you're doing well. I would say, well, I am. I'm doing pretty well. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Perhaps our shallow interactions were a way that we both kept all of our own little demons at bay, who, who knows? I will say that I 
take some responsibility for that shallowness because I made the assumption that he was like that. He was shallow. He didn't want to talk. And so I engaged him at that level. It never occurred to me to ask him any kind of personal questions about who he was, where he came from, what he was about, why he did what he did, why he played music, why he enjoyed life, what he enjoyed, who his girlfriends were when he was in high school. Never occurred to me to ask him those questions. I just said, well, I'm doing fine, Dad, and I'm happy to see you are too. I must tell you, by the time we got around to the stage of I'm doing fine, Dad, I hope you are too, part of our relationship, the happy church-going family, the marriage my father and mother were in, had fallen apart. Turns out, my father fell in love with the piano player in one of his musical groups, and when my sister turned 18, my father filed for divorce and moved away from the home, started a whole new experience with this woman who was the piano player. They were happy musicians living together. By the time my father moved out, I was 27 years old and living elsewhere in North Carolina and wasn't really surprised that he left because he was never really all that happy. He was just living up to his responsibilities that he had been taught to live up to because that was just what you did back in the 50s and the 60s. I mean, funny enough, when you think about it, my father was a bit of a bohemian because he simply couldn't tolerate living any way other than the way he wanted to live, and the way he wanted to live was the, the musician's life. Even though he continued to work for the power company throughout his entire career, and he continued to drink. He never stopped drinking, and I later heard from one of my uncles that his drinking almost cost him his job later in his career. It was a good job. By the time he was near retirement, he had risen to the level of supervisor and done fairly well with his life. But that alcohol and all of those war memories still haunted him, and I imagine it it, it informed his music. I'll bet if I could go back and listen to something that was recorded, although I don't think anything actually was, but listen to something that was recorded, I, I would hear some of that longing in, in his songs. And maybe when I play my songs now on my guitar, I have longing that came from him that comes out in the way I strum the strings. As I've thought about this story of my father over the years, I've had to look at the idea of how one squares the contrast between the war and the music between the secrets and what is revealed. Do I hold on to it and cling to it because I'm angry about it and my father did such bad things because of, of his warlike violence? Or do I remember the, the music? Of course, everybody deals with these situations in whatever style they have. Some people cling to the, the horror of the situation. Some people completely forget about the horror and just focus on the positive. Some, like, like me, for example, I have both in my head at the same time and have managed to somehow create a story for you right now about the way I have processed all of it. Might be worth saying I was collateral damage from World War II, as so many people were, and often, if you've 
had a parent, mother or father, who went off to war and came back traumatized, you too are collateral damage from that experience. My father also paid a fairly high price for this because as he progressed in his life, he was also a smoker. I left that out. Of course, everybody smoked Lucky Strikes, it seemed like, back in the 50s and the 60s. He certainly did. He drank, he smoked, and he ate traditional southern home cooking, which meant a lot of fried chicken and steaks, mashed potatoes, gravy, greens, even lettuce sometimes smothered in hot bacon grease on Sunday with bacon crumpled up in it as a treat. Well, what does that do to the body? By the time my father retired, and continued to play music, his health started to decline. And by the time he was 76, he had arrived at a place that was really sad. He was on kidney dialysis. He had lots of health problems. He had heart problems and other problems that I didn't know about. He was just basically a sick man, no longer able to play the fiddle. That said, he would have the fellows over, and they would play while he sat there in his wheelchair listening to the music. So he carried that youthful boyhood desire for music and singing all the way to the wheelchair. And I would often stop by and see him on my way through town as I visited my homeland, and we would always have the same conversation. How are you doing, son? I'm fine. Well, I'm fine too. Everything's good. All right. Glad to hear it. And then we wouldn't do anything else. So one day I decided that I would change that. So I stopped by and went in and sat down. And How are you doing, son? I'm fine. How are you, dad? I'm fine. And off we went. And then I said to him, have you ever had anybody interview you about your childhood? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, could I do that now? And he said, well, yes, sure. And he perked up. He, he got the brighter eyes that I'd seen when he was younger, when we were playing music in, in the living room back when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, and so forth. And so I said, well, could you tell me about what it was like when you were in high school? He smiled. He said, well, you know, when I was in high school, I grew up in Chucky, Tennessee. That's not too far from Johnson City. Now, I already knew that. You know, and, and me and the boys, we would go down to the river in the summertime, and we would skinny dip. And we had such a good time skinny dipping. And I said, well, what about a girlfriend? Did you have any girlfriends? Oh, yes, there was Inez. I just really loved Inez. We just had the greatest relationship. We loved each other. And he went on and on about Inez and on and on about the boys down at the river skinny dipping and some of the escapades they had in Chucky, Tennessee. And then he came over the mountain with my grandfather to Asheville when he was in the ninth grade. And ended up going to what's now Asheville High School, but at the time was called Lee Edwards High School. Now, he also told me during that time when I asked him, well, were you a good student? And he said, no, I wasn't a very good student. I was held back because I didn't really know how to read. 
I suspect he might have been dyslexic. He said, I was good in math. I really liked math, but I, I didn't know how to read. And I know he liked math because when we were going to the Sunday church services, he was the treasurer of the church. So he would be in charge of collecting the money and counting the money and adding up all the books for the church. So my father was really good at math, but he really was not a reader. And he was sitting there in his chair, a wheelchair, and, uh, and very sick at the time, telling me these stories. And I said, well, what about World War II? Tell me about World War II. What was it like for you? And he begrudgingly at first started to talk about the war and talked about how hard it was and talked about the Battle of the Bulge a bit and talked about how he was so homesick and all he wanted to do was to get back to western north carolina go back to work for the power company and he wanted to play music when he came back and then he said you know i do remember a time i was in germany and we were liberating europe and it was war ripped up war torn and he wasn't a great storyteller, so I might be embellishing this story a little bit just for the sake of my own memories. But I think he was, you know, he did talk about how, how rough it was and how ragged and, 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 and torn up and bomb-riddled everything was. And he said, I came upon this German household, and I went inside, and the house was all run down and ramshackle and he said I looked around the rooms and I had my rifle and I was with a few other fellows and and we were liberating we were liberating Europe and I looked up on the mantel in the German home and I saw a fiddle a fiddle case and I opened the fiddle case and inside was this fiddle and I stole that fiddle that day I took that fiddle from the mantle. I don't remember if he said I liberated the fiddle from Germany. He certainly did feel like he was liberating Germany. And he said, I brought the fiddle back home with me. And and that's the fiddle that I played with Tommy Bell. And that's the fiddle I had when when you first started to learn how to play the guitar. And I still have that fiddle to this day. The more he told the story, the brighter his eyes got. The more he smiled, the more animated he became. He was a different person, no longer shallow. My father and I, for the first time, were having a conversation that felt like the music we played when I was growing up. He was really no joke telling me some of the stories of his life. And it occurred to me that up until that point, I'll bet nobody had ever asked him to tell those stories. Nobody had leaned into who he was. Nobody had listened to what he had to say. He had gone about his business, doing what he had to do, living up to his responsibilities. His only outlet, of course, was playing music, taking some of those home movies. Funny enough, the home movies did not have sound. So I'm listening to him. I'm hearing the sound. I'm hearing his stories. I'm watching his animation, his eyes grow young as we're sitting there. And I was thinking, this is not the same man I have been visiting all these years. This is not the same man that I couldn't figure out. I 
resented because he had been punitive. I resented for all of the reasons that so many people resent their parents. They, they don't maybe understand the problems that arise from ch child-parent interactions are problems that are youthful problems. And as we all mature, doesn't mean the problems didn't happen, doesn't mean the problems go away, but there are other ways to look at those problems. And as I was sitting there listening to my father tell those stories, leaning forward, smiling, talking, chatterbox, like he'd never been before, it dawned on me that I had made a terrible mistake as a, as a son, as a human being. I had forgotten to ask him to talk about who he was. I had forgotten to ask him to tell me his stories with a genuine inclination to listen. So there I sat, listening to those stories, thinking, my goodness, what, what an opportunity I have here. Now I can really get to know my father. So that afternoon I put down my pencil and my notes and told him how much I appreciated the time that he was willing to spend with me and talk to me about all his stories. And I left that house feeling completely different about him than before I had entered, no longer thinking this is a shallow relationship, thinking this is an opportunity to do something amazing with my father. And I drove away feeling quite liberated. And about a month later, I walked into my sister's house and said hello to her, and my sister had an odd look on her face. I had just arrived from another trip, and she came around the corner, and she said, I have something to tell you. And I knew then what she was going to say. She said, our, our father died yesterday. He, he's no longer with us. And I thought, oh, my God. And there was an emptiness that was there. You know, of course, there was grief. When one loses a parent, that's always there. And she said, you know, the last thing he said, when the ambulance came to pick him up and take him to the hospital, the ambulance driver said that when he asked my father if my father needed any help, all my father said was, don't worry about it. I'm okay. Now, all these years later, as I think about that, I'm okay. That may have been my father's mantra. I'm okay. I'll make things work out. I'm responsible. I'll live up to what I need to live up to, even though I'm being called in another direction. I would like to think that if my father had had a different set of circumstances around him, he would have been a great film director or a terrific photographer like Ansel Adams, or he might have been a, a great Nashville singer playing on the stages of the Grand Ole Opry, instead of a man trying to make his way after World War II in a family that he loved, but he just didn't feel like he fit in. And yet he did wear the, the work clothes. He did go to work. He did smell like creosote. He did haul me up the, up the pole. He did do all the things he needed to do. He did provide for us. And he was also violent. He was also suffering from his own demons. He brought the war back. And we had that war as well. 
And now, as I think about all of this, and as I sit here telling you this story, of course, I am thinking about how one resolves the circumstances of one's life. How do you forgive a parent? How do you forgive a brother, a sister, a friend, a sibling, a somebody you're married to, a spouse? How do you do that if something goes terribly wrong? How do you remember those people? And I have learned stories contain a kaleidoscope of views, a kaleidoscope of imagery. So every time you spin that kaleidoscope, the story changes a bit. My story of the shallow father who taught me how to play music has changed over the years. It's widened, it's deeper now. My father is your father, your father is my father. Parents are always responsible for birthing their offsprings. And that's just simply something that everyone has and we always will have. Question, of course, is how do we deal with that? How do we look at it? So when I look back on my father and I think of the guitar and I think of my index finger on the third string, E string, making the G chord, how much I enjoyed playing music with my father, and how much I dreaded those episodes when he would turn into his World War II memories, or whatever memories he was tur he turned into. And it's funny, you don't you can turn into a memory, as in I turned a corner and turned into the parking lot, or you can turn into a memory as you as if you become that memory. The memory of the Battle of the Bulge. He turned into the memory and suddenly the bulge battle was going on right there in our house. Or he turned into the memory of the of the of the fiddle on the on the mantle in Germany and how much he cherished that fiddle. So that explains now why he held that fiddle with such reverence when he took it off the mantle or took it off the piano. Or actually he kept it on the mantle, funny enough, in the house where we lived. So maybe he put the put the fiddle back up on the mantle because he knew it had a place on a mantle and he wanted to give it a home just like he wanted to give his children a home and give himself a home as well. So when you are thinking about the circumstances in your life, those hard times perpetrated by people who are close to you, now sometimes I understand those, those incidences may be downright unforgivable. You may not even want to forgive them. I would like to think that we have forgiveness in, in, uh, in us. I would like to think maybe whatever it is that's happened to you, you have the power to forgive. I would like to think that I have it too. So when I think about my father, I certainly think about his World War II experiences in the home while I was growing up, and I also think about the music experience. So of the two, what do I do with both of those? How do I remember them? Well, I remember both the, the hard times and the music. And I choose to take the music over the hard times. I choose to tell you the story, framing it around the music. Is there forgiveness in music? Likely so. And even now, no matter where I am in the world, when I hear those Appalachian old-time tunes like Alabama Jubilee, Down Yonder, Old Joe Clark. 
Orange Blossoms special, I get a sense of home, a sense of completeness, a sense of forgiveness, if you will. And I did mention Orange Blossoms special and just wanted to tell you as we close out that of all of the songs my father and I played, the Orange Blossom special was my favorite. And the reason why was because it was a train song. It was about a train coming down the tracks. And I played the rhythm guitar behind the train. And he would make his fiddle sound like the train, and I would make my rhythm guitar sound like the wheels of the train on the track. And the Orange Blossom special, it was absolutely my favorite. And then there was Listen to the Mockingbird, which Tommy Bell taught my father to play on the fiddle. And the idea with that song was to get the fiddle to sound like the mockingbird by the way you touched your bow to the strings so you have the train coming down the track you have the mockingbird singing and who knows what else in all of those tunes and of course the war built into that as well the memories the memories built into the songs and even to this day when i hear a mockingbird sing or when i have to stop at a track and watch the freights go by. I somehow feel like I belong there. That's part of who I am and part of why I exist. So whatever your experiences were with your parents, however easy or hard it was, take a little bit of time. Maybe rethink the way you're telling the story. Go go into it. If you think it was their fault, yeah, Probably a fair amount of it was their fault. But there were extenuating circumstances beyond what was their fault. There are always a thousand versions to every story you tell. And no matter how many times you tell it, each time you tell it, you will tell a different version. And that's why storytelling and memories and imagination has such currency in our culture today. It may be the most valuable currency we have. So I encourage you to tell those stories. And when somebody has a little look in their eye like they would like to tell you a story, I encourage you to listen like I listen to my father. You'll be surprised at how depth will appear rapidly because depth is always there right underneath the surface. All you have to do is just listen for it or ask a question or two. So on that note, thank you so much for listening to my story about my father. Also, thank you for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, an imaginative storm podcast offering you fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. And in this case, offering you a story worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. If you would like to learn more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to start. 
And if you would like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. I would love to hear from you. I'll be happy to, to write back. What's your story? Where are you in the world? What are you up to? What do you like? How about those parents you had? What happened there? Love to know. Nave at jamesnave.com. And if you'd like to ever join me on a Saturday morning for our imaginative storm writing prompt of the week gathering, if you're inclined to write or tell stories, you might be interested in this. It's a, it's always open, never a charge. Imaginativestorm.com is where you can find the Zoom link. We gather at noon Eastern time for an hour with writers, and we we write, we talk, we tell stories, we have conversations. It's a bit of a workshop slash salon. So I, I'll bet you, I bet you would enjoy that if you joined us. So, like I said, thank you again for tuning in to, to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you swing back around some other time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>